building trust in identity, a cyber criminal's take on where fraud is heading, and happy 20th birthday to digital signatures. These stories and more in this week's ISMG Security Report. Hello, I'm Nick Holland. One of the most pervasive topics of conversation in many of the roundtables I've hosted over the last few months has been identity management. Identity has really come to the forefront with the COVID-19 pandemic, as organisations struggle to deal with managing access credentials for remote workers. At an industry level, identity standards are being worked on by a variety of organisations around the globe. One of these being the Open Identity Exchange, which is working to accelerate the adoption of digital identity services based on open standards. In an interview this week, Anna Delaney, Director of ISMG Productions, spoke with Nick Mothershaw, Chair and Executive Deputy Director at the Open Identity Exchange, and she asked him about the components of trust as a fundamental for any identity initiative. Here's Nick's response. Well, we take a, a unique position, really, in that we are all about that trust element. So we're not, we don't really look at the technology so there are other organisations who will look at technical standards. So you know the, the bits and bytes of you know, how do you lay out a communications protocol between uh, a service provider and an identity provider. OAX is, is, is cognizant of that and contributes to that in those organisations that, that, that you know, focus on that area. We focus on the, the, the more uh, the, the, the business area of that. So what we're looking at really is, oh, that's great. Technically, we can connect people. And that's not actually that much of a challenge. It's that element of trust. So when you are connected, can you trust the identity that is being presented to you? So we look at the trust scheme, the trust framework layer that is needed. And that includes things like the, 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 the legal implications uh, of trust, which can include things like you know, what, what's the liability when things go wrong. It includes the organizational level. So who, who, are the, who are the different actors in the system? What roles are they playing? Can they be trusted? Uh, it includes the, the way you convey trust to end users in terms of using something like a trust marker, a symbol that, that the user can see and the service provider can see that you know, embodies trust in the ecosystem. So there's a whole host of um, business, legal, operational elements that need to go to make up that trust. And that's where OAX is uniquely focused on bringing all of those things to, to, to bear in the market in a consistent and understood way. And if we can do that consistently, we can achieve inter interoperability for IDs across different schemes. And that would mean you know, within an individual market, I can use my ID for lots of different use cases. But more importantly, I can use it across markets. So I can go to, you know, I'm from the UK. If I went to India, uh, can I open a bank account in India using my UK ID? Well, today I can't. But if we get all of these business rules, as well as the technical rules, consistent, then in the future, I should be able to. And that's, that's where OAX is focusing those business rule elements of the need for trust. How much of a challenge has it been to sort of gather that trust? Oh, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's an ongoing challenge. We're still, still working on this. So there are, there are a number of what we call trust schemes uh, or frameworks already in operation, something like the EIDAS trust framework uh, is applicable across Europe. Within that, there are a number of notified schemes and they can interoperate across Europe. And then there's other things like um, DIAC in Canada, uh, looking at a pan-Canadian trust framework. There's trust frameworks in Australia and New Zealand. Um, the UK government is working on a new trust framework. So the various countries at the moment working at the framework level. So we're helping them understand 
yeah, what goes into a framework. Um, but uh, you know, so we're, we're about to publish a new paper, which is a, a kind of update on our trust framework series, which will bring them all together to explain, well, this is the contents of a trust framework for identity. So if you're going to implement a framework, this is what you should be looking for. This is what you should be implementing. That allows people to do it in a consistent way. And importantly, that will then allow interoperability. So for them looking for that interoperability, as I said, between you know, different schemes in different countries, if they've all been implemented in a reasonably consistent way, in a comparable way, that mutual trust can be achieved. Um, so that mutual trust internationally is a journey really we're only just starting on. Uh, we're focusing on again, getting it right you know, country by country or territory by territory right now and then building on that international interoperability. And that's going to take us you know, two to five years um, to, to lay all that out and, and get interoperability models that will work on a global basis. You're listening to the ISMG Security Report on ISMG Radio. ISMG, your number one source for information security news. If you had the opportunity to make it to any of the ISMG summits last year, there's a good chance that you saw Brett Johnson, who was a fixture as a keynote speaker for a number of these. Brett has quite a story. Formerly known by the United States Secret Service as the original internet godfather, he was a central figure in cybercrime for over 20 years. In short, Brett has the credentials and the knowledge to be quite a resource on the direction that fraud is going to take with the pandemic. And this week, Tom Field, ISMG's SVP of Editorial, spoke with Brett and asked him just how fraudsters are changing their game because of COVID-19. Here's Brett. So here's what you need to understand as far as fraud. And we used to teach this. I ran a group called Shadow Crew, which was the precursor of today's dark web and dark web communities. One of the lessons that we taught was that a criminal should never act out of desperation. So if you look at the three necessities of cybercrime, those necessities are gathering the data, committing the crime, and then finally cashing out, putting cash in pocket. If you look at all three of those necessities, from a criminal point of view, all three have a bit of desperation. You gather the data, then you have to use the data to commit the crime as fast as you can before the data is canceled, before it times out, before someone finds out you're in their system, something like that. Cashing out, you have the money deposited into a bank account, a gift card, or a prepaid debit card, and then you have to try to get it out as soon as you possibly can before it's canceled or recalled. So there's always been this, this idea from a criminal point of view of do not act out of desperation. What's happened with the pandemic this year is that entire idea has been flipped on its head. Now criminals are no longer desperate. Criminals are calm, cool, collected, and calculating. It's the individuals, it's the companies, it's the good guys that are now desperate because we've got 40 million Americans out of work. We've got more people at home now working than has ever been in the history of mankind. Because of that, people don't know what to do. They're thrown on their heads, they're desperate. And because of that, when you're desperate, you tend to make bad choices. So that's what I see now. That's the big thing that, that COVID has done is it's caused that, that, that big paradigm shift from criminals acting out of desperation to individuals acting out of desperation. Because now those 40 million Americans, they're needing money. They're needing jobs. Those people who are working from home, they don't really understand how to protect themselves. So they see all this stuff coming in. They don't know what they're looking at. They tend to make very bad decisions. You're probably not aware of this. But we've recently just celebrated quite a birthday. It's been the 20th anniversary of e-signature's creation, with the e-sign act becoming law on June the 30th, 2000, which made it legal 
to use electronic signatures to sign and store documents. While ink signatures have remained pervasive within many industries, the shift to working remotely with the pandemic has highlighted just how problematic these are, accelerating the adoption of digital signatures for many organisations. This week, I spoke with Michael McGrath, the Director of Global Regulations and Standards at OneSpan, a company that deals with e-signatures, and I asked him just how has the pandemic impacted the way that e-signatures are being used today. Here he is. COVID has really changed the way we do business, and, and it, I think those changes are, are going to remain after or when the pandemic uh, goes away. Um, it, businesses and governments have really had to jumpstart and, and leverage the technology for electronic signatures. Um, you mentioned notaries. So um, New York State was very hard hit. And, and I think uh, Governor Cuomo in New York, I think he was the first governor to uh, make provisions for remote online notarization. Um, so people could have uh, legal documents that required a notary done so in a fashion uh, under executive order that would permit um, uh, the two parties to sign those documents uh, in presence of a notary. That was under executive order. Um, the, the reality is, is that re remote online notarization is something that's uh, really taking effect and, and moving rather quickly uh, across the states. I, I think it's around 23 or 25 states today have laws on the books uh, permitting remote online notarization um, and more in the works. So uh, there is a, a bill uh, introduced in Congress, uh, a federal bill to, to permit remote online notarization as a result of the pandemic. Uh, I don't think that bill is going to go anywhere, but it's it, it was introduced a, a few months back. Um, but other other uh, areas where we've seen a lot of uptake in the use of electronic signature, um, you know, for my company, OneSpan, um, we we most of our customers are financial institutions. Um, OneSpan, we're an anti-fraud and digital identity. Uh, solutions company, and you know, we help banks uh, protect their customers from digital fraud and like account takeover and application fraud. Uh, and one of the things that we've seen a lot of lately is remote onboarding of customers, uh, remote account opening. And that process is a multi-step process. Uh, banks have to go through it. They have to comply with knowledge, uh, excuse me, know your customer requirements or KYC. Um, so they have to do an identity proofing event. Um, they would typically issue a credential for you to log into a bank account uh, that, from a security side, you know, using a multi-factor authentication tool, uh, device or uh, modality like a biometric or one-time password. Um, and then um, uh, having those documents signed, uh, those onboarding documents to open up that account would be done in, uh, obviously electronically through electronic signature. So we've, we've seen a tremendous uptake in that. Um, it, the, the pandemic also uh, made a lot of uh, passage of bills, uh, emergency allocations from Congress, uh, the PPP loans that were allocated for small business. Um, many uh, are those loans uh, in order to streamline and expedite that money getting out to small businesses. 
those loans were applied to online uh, and using electronic signature technology uh, to, to sign those documents. Um, so so that's, that's, those are a couple of things. Another example is in healthcare. Um, I don't know if you've had to go to the doctor lately, but a lot of times you don't go to the doctor anymore. You do it through telehealth. And in some cases, um, you have to sign, you know, in order to see a doctor, you have to be identity proofed. Um, and you also need to sign consent forms and those types of things. And, and that is also done with electronic signature. Um, so, so I think a lot of the electronic signature technology that has been really um, highlighted and driven through the by the pandemic is going to uh, stay here for quite a while. That's it for this week's ISMG Security Report. Theme music is by Ithaca Audio. I'm Nick Holland. Catch you next time.